Good morning. This morning, I'd like to share with you a story that may be familiar with you. It's called the Joseph story. It's found in Genesis 37. Uh, we know something about Joseph. Let me just summarize the story so that it refreshes our memory. Joseph's father is Jacob, also known as Israel. And Joseph is his favorite son. And this is the beginning of a lot of animosity between, of course, Joseph and his brothers. They were extremely jealous of him. Joseph had this famous coat of many colors. It was very, this ornate, fancy robe. And uh, Joseph had these dreams too, which talked about uh, the, the brothers and the family bowing down to him. One was his sheaf was up and the other uh, sheaves uh, would bow down. And uh, there was a dream about the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him. This even gets the rebuke of his father, Jacob. Anyway, the plot thickens and we find Joseph is looking for his brothers. Father wants to know where they were. They spot him from afar and then they plot to kill him. Well, Reuben speaks up, his younger brother, and says that, no, uh, why don't we just throw him in this well, this cistern, and then Reuben's plan was to come later and rescue him. So this is what they did. They threw him into the cistern. Now, some traveling merchants were coming along the way, and they got this idea, the brothers did, hey, let's make money off of this. So they sell Joseph to these merchants, and they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which was 10 shekels actually less than what a slave was worth during those days. So advance of the story, Joseph ends up in Egypt in the house of Potiphar. He becomes a favorite servant there. He's given responsibility of an entire household in Potiphar. But then trouble looms because Potiphar's wife now wants to seduce Joseph. He spurns her. She gets angry uh, because of this spurning and files charges uh, against Joseph. And her husband, Potiphar, throws Joseph in prison. But the Lord is with him even in prison because soon Joseph is in charge of the entire prison while still a prisoner. And he gains two new cellmates who happen to have been the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh, they're thrown into the prison at the same time as Joseph. Well, actually the same prison. And it's here that they both uh, have dreams. And Joseph, being the good interpreter of dreams, what he does is he goes and interprets their dream. Well, they love this. The cupbearer loved it so much, promises Joseph that he'll remember Joseph and try to get him out. Well, he never did. And now Pharaoh has a dream. The cupbearer remembers that Joseph... Uh, can interpret dreams because he interpreted his. So Pharaoh calls Joseph to interpret his dream. And so Joseph does, and here's the dream. It's a central part of the story. Joseph interprets the dream as saying that there will be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of scarcity. In other words, there's going to be seven years of abundance of food, but then the next seven years will be years of famine. And then Joseph tells Pharaoh, hey, you know, you should find someone who will distribute the gathered food for seven years during the seven years of famine. And guess who is put in charge of this? Yes, Pharaoh appoints Joseph. So now Joseph is only second in command to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Joseph has moved in a short period of time from the cistern to a heartbeat away from the throne. Now, Jacob, Joseph's father, finds out that there's food in Egypt because, see, the, the famine hit not only Egypt but Canaan. So uh, he sends his 10 sons uh, to Egypt to find food. And when his brothers arrive, lo and behold, Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. 
But Joseph doesn't say anything except to ask them, hey, where are you from? And they said, we're from Canaan. As soon as they say that, Joseph falsely accuses them, his 10 brothers, of being spies and throws them in a holding cell for three days. You know, how about that for a warm welcome, huh? Now, after the three days, Joseph tells them to leave one of them behind and go back with food that would be given them, bring back the youngest brother, Benjamin, because Joseph wanted to see him. So they return home, explain to their father, Jacob, what happened. Now, Jacob is totally distressed about this whole thing because he doesn't want to lose Benjamin, but Benjamin is being asked to go back with him. So he relents. He allows it. Now, when they return to Egypt, and Joseph now sees Benjamin, and Benjamin is with him. Upon their return, Joseph surreptitiously plants a silver cup in Benjamin's sack, which is then recovered on their way back. It was a setup by Joseph to get them back to Egypt and to keep Benjamin while they go back home and get their father Jacob. At this point, Joseph then reveals himself to his brothers, his true identity. Now, his brothers were understandably terrified of the news, but Joseph reassures them that no, all is well. It was really God who sent Joseph to Egypt, not them. He then asked them to return to their father so that they can live in the land of Goshen where they will be taken care of. So Jacob returns to Egypt with his sons and they go directly to Goshen and Joseph meets his father there on his chariot for their emotional reunion. Now, near the end of Genesis, Jacob dies. Joseph reassures his frightened brothers, uh, whose fear of retribution was at a high point at this time after the father's death. But Joseph says, don't worry, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to do harm to me, Joseph says, but God intended it for good. So that completes the story. Now, Let's move to a traditional interpretation of this. This is the traditional interpretation. Joseph is the victim of his brother's jealousy. We can see that. No fault of his own. He's the recipient of his father's favor. And then through a remarkable series of events that appear to be random but are actually divinely designed, Joseph ends up in favor with almost everyone that he encounters, including people in powerful positions with him who have the authority to determine his fate. Now, eventually, through his God-given gift to interpret dreams, Joseph ultimately lands in the most powerful circle of the empire, right next to Pharaoh himself. He becomes their chief administrator who would determine who gets food, how much food they get, and when they get it. Okay? This is seen as great leadership, right? doing good to the poor, feeding the hungry. And Joseph is pictured as a hero. This is the traditional interpretation. He saves Egyptians and he saves Israelites from starvation and death. I mean, what could be more heroic than that? He's a dedicated servant. He saves Egyptians and Israelites from starvation and death, right? He, uh, he even weathers false you know, accusations from Potiphar's wife. He's a seer. He interprets dreams. He can see that, but not any dreams. It's especially the dreams of powerful men, right? He's wise. He can be trusted. He's skilled as a leader, as an administrator. All these are qualities of Joseph that we see in this story. But more than anything else, look at the forgiveness, his heart. He, he offers um, this forgiveness to his mean brothers. He renders them no bad feelings even after their father Jacob dies. They're placed forever in the best part of the land, in the land of Goshen, where they presumably will live happily ever after. 
And we as Christians hear this, we can learn from Joseph, we are told, right? We can be inspired by his life. Let's not wallow with our victim mentality, but let's move on. Let's use the gifts God has given us. Let's do good to people. Oh, good. And if God rewards us with position, power, and privilege, so be it, right? It's part of his plan to use us where we are. And thus ends the story of Joseph, traditionally interpreted. But is there more? Is there something perhaps that we don't see or can't see because of where we are standing and looking into this story? From the point of view of the privileged, the traditional interpretation sounds feasible and even appropriate. But from the standpoint of the dispossessed, the marginalized, the people of the diaspora, with no homeland, the underprivileged, the poor, the exploited, even the traditional interpretation needs to be challenged. So I wanna suggest today for our reflection and discussion, alternative interpretations to the traditional interpretation of the Joseph story. And to do this, I want to offer two different backdrops that will help us know what this story is about. This is the deep story found in this iconic biblical passage. So I want to describe two backdrops that will help us to take a look at this. These aren't definitive interpretations. These are backdrops, okay? Think of this as a, a scene that falls in the back that will help us to contextualize what we uh, know about the Joseph story. And we will together think through what it means to come up with an alternative interpretation than the traditional one in the Joseph story. So here it is, background number one. The first backdrop or background that we need to be aware of is something called the empire. The empire. Now, most of the biblical interpretive work regarding empire uh, today in biblical scholarship is done in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. There's been abundance of critical biblical studies and what is called a genre even called critical empire studies that look at traditional interpretations of New Testament texts in light of the, of course, the Roman Empire, which is the empire at the time of Jesus. And looking at this has given significance and meaning to scripture. Now, let me give you one example so that you understand it so we can build on this. Everyone knows the story of John 4, where Jesus meets a woman at the well in Samaria. It's a well-known story. And at the end of the story, let's go there. The women of Sychar, the village that the woman at the well witnesses to, after hearing Jesus teach, they say to the woman that, you know, that, um, that we, we believe, not so much because of what you said, but because of what Jesus has said. And then they say this, and I call this man pointing to Jesus, really is the savior of the world. Now, traditionally, we would say at this point, hi, nice. They all know Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. Amen. Let's have coffee now. What a critical empire perspective sees, however, is something deeper and ultimately more dangerous for these women. It was the emperor Domitian who required all subjects in the Roman Empire to consider him the empire, the emperor, their savior. In fact, they were to acknowledge him, the emperor, and I quote, as the savior of the world. So the Roman Empire demanded that he be called the savior of the world. So when our women of Sikar say that Jesus is the savior of the world, 
they are in fact party to a dangerous insubordination, political betrayal, and insurrection against Caesar because they have not replaced the emperor with Jesus, their new king. They're saying the emperor is no longer king, but Jesus is. Now, this would have meant their lives. This is the risk of devoting your life to Jesus. Now, we have yet to develop empire studies in the Old Testament, but we're going to attempt to this morning. Maybe we can start right here with this Joseph story. So the motivating emotion in the empire is fear. Everything is based on fear. And one of the fears is the fear that there isn't enough good things for everyone to go around. This develops into a ruthless fear. And we see this in Joseph with the monopoly of food, now in possession of the Egyptian empire, Joseph now manages this monopoly. And it begins in the middle of chapter 47, if you wanna to turn to that now or later. And it's sometimes called the story of the bad Joseph. Yeah, the bad Joseph. Let's see why. Look at this. Joseph first collects all the people's money in exchange for food. Okay. And uh, then they're fed, so everyone's happy. But now they have no money. So the people will eventually run out of food, which they did. So they come to Joseph again, and Joseph says this, what's your collateral? What's your collateral, right? They say, well, well the only thing we have is, is our cattle. Fine, says Joseph, I'll take it. Uh, and so they give up their cattle for food. You see what's going on here? The next year, after their food runs out, they return to Joseph again. And Joseph asked them the same question, right? They shouldn't have been surprised. What's your collateral? They said, well, you took our cattle. The only thing we have left is, I guess, our land. Yeah, Joseph said, good, I'll take it. I'll take your land. At the end of that year, so the third year, they uh, return and uh, they want to have food again. And Joseph says, you know, what do you have as collateral? Yeah. Uh, and they say to him, well, you, you took our money. You took our cattle. You took our land. The only thing that's left is ourselves. That's all we have, our lives. And so Joseph says, okay, I'll take you. So they exchanged themselves for food. That's how they became slaves. It was an economic transition and transaction. By the end of the chapter, Pharaoh now has all of the land, all of the capital, everything that belongs to the priest, the land, except for the priest. The priest kept their land, see, because Pharaoh needed the priest because he needed someone to bless him. Yeah. So the myth of scarcity has been introduced. This myth is that there's a limited amount of resources available and everyone can have it. And if you do, you must give up something. You must give up your collateral to get what is good. And by the way, I have it all. I have a monopoly of all the resources, right? I have all the seven years of food stirred up. And if you want to eat food for the next seven years, then, well, you have to come to me and we'll see what we can work out. Well, moving ahead to the story, by the way, even to Exodus, the people of Israel multiply in the land of Egypt. But they leave Egypt eventually, right? They're in the wilderness where there are no resources. After the exodus, they finally realize that food is a gift called manna. 
manna that they didn't earn. They didn't exchange something in ownership for it. It was a pure gift from God. It took them a while to learn what a gift manna was. They had old habits, remember, that they learned from Egypt, especially the habit of hoarding. So the first thing they did was to hoard the manna. Remember that? And what happened after they tried to bank the manna, to invest the manna? It got spoiled because you cannot store up God's generosity. It's given every day in the right proportion for you to receive that day. So the first backdrop was the empire. The second backdrop is diaspora. Now diaspora means the scattering of the people of Israel who either cannot or decide not to return to their homeland. Most of the Jewish people even today are in diaspora. Not all of them have returned to Israel. So we have a modern day diaspora going on. But in the history of Israel, diaspora has been experienced through their experience of slavery in Egypt, exile in Assyria and in Babylonia, and through the numerous conflicts that have prevented them from being together in their homeland. So they've experienced that. Now, the one thing a diaspora narrative offers is a positive view of living outside the land. Meaning, yeah, it's okay. You're not home, but it's okay. Yeah, don't be anxious about returning home. Right? This would be an encouragement to Jews who are living in exile. In fact, records show that Jews sent back money from Babylon back to their homeland for temple expenses. Yeah. So maybe they, their experience of exile was not what we maybe imagine it to be. That may be a myth. Some even feared a loss of wealth and status if they went back to Israel. The younger exiles who were already assimilated into the Babylonian lifestyle probably wouldn't be able to culturally identify with Israel because they're more familiar with Babylon. Get that. So here it is, historically. And here's a little biblical scholarship that might provide some insight for us here. Modern scholars place the writing of Genesis during the Persian period, during the 6th or 5th century BC. Okay, this would mean that the end of Babylonian Empire and the exile, which gave way to the Persian Empire, because Persia overtook Babylonia under Cyrus, it all was happening at the same time. So questions for the Jews dealt with whether they should obey Cyrus's edict to now go and return home. Because when Persia took over Babylon, that's when Cyrus gave the command or edict that it's okay, I don't want you in exile anymore, you go back home and rebuild your, your land. Well, here lies the situation. A lot of them decided, should we stay? Because we have it pretty good here. Or should we go back, right? The story of Joseph, therefore, has this backdrop to understanding whether Joseph himself should return to be with his people or remain under the influence and power of the Egyptian empire with the rationale of doing good to his family and people. So Joseph may have struggled with this, and this is why we have this story. It's a diaspora narrative because people were struggling with this very issue. Should I stay here? Things are good. I have food. Yes, it's the empire, but what am I giving up? Well, you're giving up your homeland, but I, I'm not at home in my homeland, right? Did Joseph, in fact, do good to his family and people? What was Joseph's reasons for staying in this empire? If it was to do good for his family and people, which we think is there in the text, 
the text actually reveals otherwise. Joseph's father, Jacob, you see, is reluctant and fearful about leaving Canaan, his homeland. But Joseph shows no inclination to return, right? He could have reunited with his father in Canaan. He could have sent food and sustenance to Canaan. No, Joseph chose to be in Egypt. Regarding his family, the big question is, where will Joseph's and a father and, and his brothers, where would Jacob's family settle? Where, where would they eventually settle if he wants to take care of them? Well, scripture says in the best part of the land, that's a cult, we're gonna settle you in the best part of the land called the land of Goshen. Goshen, really? Seriously? You know where Goshen is? I mean, let, let's stop and pause there. If this really was the best part of the land, why didn't Pharaoh return it, retain it for himself? Why didn't he keep it? Was it really the best part of the land? Okay, Goshen is in the northeast corner of Egypt. It's a great buffer zone between Egypt and the rest of his, uh, Egypt's northern aggressors and enemies. So these migrants, including Jacob's family, right, would be a human wall protecting the Egyptians from attack, right? Is there a correlation with minority groups today who are persuaded to cooperate with an agenda that requires relocation for the good of the empire? This is what's going on. Now, Goshen is called the land of Ramesses in chapter 47, verse 11. The land of Ramesses. That familiar to you? We find this land of Ramesses later in the book of Exodus, and Jacob's descendants will be forced as slaves to build. This was the best part of the land for whom? Now, after Jacob's death, the brothers are afraid Joseph will now get his revenge on them, right? So they lie and say that, oh, Jacob wants you to forgive us. Uh, and in case that doesn't work, they had a plan. They're prepared to say, well, then we'll be your slaves, right? They didn't want to be killed. But Joseph, interestingly enough in the story, doesn't technically forgive them since that is absent from the text. There's no mention of forgiveness, actually. And also, Joseph never opposes his brothers as being characterized as servants. And interestingly enough, Joseph never in the text calls them brothers. And at the end, Joseph is ambiguous about his response. He says, am I in the place of God, right? Am I in the place of God? The implied answer is no, of course not. But in this situation of life and death, Joseph indeed is in the place of God, right? He, because he speaks for God's intentions. In the next phrase, he says, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people, right? For God sent me before you to preserve life, he says. You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Really, Joseph, is this the promise of God or the promise of the empire that we see and hear in Joseph's voice? So these are the things to talk about, to think about. What do you think about this traditional interpretation as opposed to the other two backdrops that could, it could inform an alternative interpretation of Joseph based on two backdrops, the first being empire 
and the, the next one being diaspora. God bless you.